are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Gritty. Adventurous. Dedicated. Noah Evan is a Cleveland-based saxophonist dedicated to sparking deeper interest in the arts of today through the performance of contemporary music. She is co-founder and executive director of the Cleveland Uncommon Sound Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to championing new music in Northeast Ohio. She has commissioned over 50 new works for the saxophone, many of which were composed for Anyi Suono, her saxophone duo, and Patchwork, her saxophone and drum set duo. Noah has visited dozens of college campuses offering performances, masterclasses, clinics, presentations, and composer readings. She teaches saxophone and new music at Kent State University and holds a DMA in contemporary music from Bowling Green State University. Hey, Noah. How's it going? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for being here. You're only the second guest in the history of the podcast. This will be like 66 episodes, 67 episodes, where you're actually sitting across from me. That's pretty cool. So why are you in town again? Sure. Well, I'm actually doing a clinic tomorrow at uh, Ohio University in town. Uh, They have an annual saxophone quartet summit, and I'll be one of the clinicians for that. And I was also giving some clinics at Jackson High School today, which is in the area. Awesome. Well, it's good to have you in my crazy little studio basement thing. Um, and, uh, we met at the Bowling Green State University New Music Festival in 2012. And you were, you were in the middle of your DMA at that point. And you, uh, I was, I had a piece being played and I got to see uh, your performance of this piece that I truly love. And it's by another, um, uh, fellow, um, a fellow composer and adjective collective member, John Sokol, and it's called These, and it's for baritone sax and tuba. And that piece completely blew me away. I loved it. Oh my God, did I love it. So that's how I got introduced to you. And, and, and since then, you have been commissioning new work and performing new work and both uh with you know as a solo artist but also with uh your two duos and we're going to hear some music today from both of those two duos so i wanted to start off with uh, a piece by kate soper Otatoy, and it was commissioned by your saxophone duo um so tell me tell me about that uh, you know how did how did all that get started and who is who's your collaborator Sure. Um, well, Phil Pyrrhic is my duo partner, and we started playing together in 2009. We thought it would be fun to play some saxophone duo music together and realize there really wasn't a ton of saxophone duo music. <laughs> that you know, There were some standards that people had played a lot, but there wasn't anything new that was intriguing to us. And so we decided to commission a couple of pieces, and we premiered them at the North American Saxophone Alliance in 2010. And that was our first performance together. And uh, we met at University of Illinois when I was doing Mm -hmm. my master's and he was finishing his undergrad. And then actually we started the duo when he was in Paris studying with the teacher that I had previously studied with, Jean-Michel Goury. So we actually started the duo long distance. And we've actually, we were long distance until this past fall when we, he moved to Cleveland. Oh my God, (laughs) really? Yeah. So it was a long distance duo ever since 2010. And... We were just used to doing it that way. And so it's actually been really nice to live in the same place for Mm -hmm. a few months. Uh, It makes rehearsing a lot simpler. 
Um, so this project, the recent project, um, Saxo Voce, is part is uh, what Ototoy was a part of, um, and it's uh, a project that we've been doing for three years. And the impetus was to sort of have a broader theme um, under which we would commission composers and collaborate with them. Mm-hmm. We wanted sort of a more cohesive program to to tour around and to sort of mix and match pieces that we thought would work together. Um, and the whole theme is just uh, very broad, is for composers to use our voices in whatever way they'd like. Um, obviously, to a degree, right? right so it depends yeah. on what we're capable of doing with our voices. I am certainly not a vocalist. Uh, Phil actually has some vocal training, which has definitely helped in one of our more recent commissions by Dave Remnick. Um which has us singing melodies that are very challenging. Um, so, you know, Phil ha- has a more sort of trained voice than I do for sure, mm-hmm. um, which I guess gives good contrast for that piece. Um, but a lot of the pieces, you know, they use our voices in, in very different ways. Uh, some people have us, you know, singing through the instrument or um, – and there are a few more theatrical pieces. So Kate Soper's piece, Ototoy, uh, we actually workshopped together to start the piece. Um, she was – teaching in Massachusetts and she was in that area and that's where I'm from and I happened to be visiting home and we coordinated um, my visit and were able to workshop in advance of her writing the piece. Mm -hmm. And so she was interested in singing uh, while playing multiphonics and she realized in in me singing while playing multiphonics that there are these resultant tones that you get when when you sing certain pitches with certain multiphonics. So she was interested in us sort of sustaining a multiphonic and then singing a step a stepwise line and the mm-hmm. the resultant tone that created. How hard is that? Um, it's challenging because it actually you um, for certain pitches you have to sing a little bit for the pitches she actually chose with a specific multiphonic she chose. We have to sing a little bit sharp mm-hmm. um, to get the resultant tone. And you can kind of it takes a while to get used to what that feels like and what that sounds like because it has a certain ring to it when it's right. And it has a real grittiness when it's not right. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's it is challenging because it it requires voicing the multiphonic in a certain way, where not all the pitches are coming out because of the way that you're voicing the note that you're singing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it varies depending on the multiphonics. So that uh, and the piece actually has gone through a pretty extensive revisioning process. Um, we never were able to meet with her when we were together. She did get to hear us play the piece live in Boston, mm-hmm. I think a year and a half or two years ago. And after that, she made, I think, her final revisions that really tightened up the piece. So she warned us at the beginning, why well, quote unquote warned us, that she's interested in this process of hearing the premiere and then being able to make revisions and then us doing it again. Because we told her it's it's a piece we're going to be playing over right. the course of a few years. So she would have the opportunity to do that. Um, and yeah, it was interesting to see how the piece kind of evolved and it's finally in its final form. And we actually just recorded, uh, seven of the 10 pieces. I think there are 10 Saxo Voce pieces this December, and we're working on choosing takes and getting it all edited Mm -hmm. and hope to release in September on new focus records. Awesome. What, what was it about Kate Soper and her music that had you excited to want to want to ask her for a piece to commission a work from her? Um, well, she, I, I really enjoy basically all of the music that the wedding ensemble plays and composes. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are four composers in that group, and I've worked with, uh, I've played music by Alex Minchik and 
I, w- I think I was commissioning Eric Wobbles for my other duo around the same time, a little bit before. And I was interested in Kate Sober because she's a vocalist and she's written for saxophone. And I mm-hmm. thought it would be a really interesting combination to see what she would come up with as a vocalist who also has written for for Alex Minchik in the group many times. Right. Other than the singing while playing the multiphonics, is there anything else that's kind of unique about this work? Maybe unique relative to other pieces or even unique within Kate Soper's own own kind of uh, language? I, yeah, there is something that makes it a little bit different than some of her other works, but she, she has, I don't know, quite a wide range of sort of soundscapes she uses and combinations of instruments, so it's hard to say that it stands out as different. Mm-hmm. I think it has this like sort of visceral energy to it that like when you when I go to play the piece when I think about the character for instance the opening section is this really quiet um, multiphonic that's just two pitches that are very close together which is a really unstable combination usually mm-hmm. it's so it's a dyad that's really close together and and Phil and I play it in unison and then we come out of the texture with one of the pitches and then it turns into a melody and then it really evolves so the pacing of the piece is very um, definitely builds an intensity and it, it makes sense with the story of the piece, but also just sort of the physicality of playing this multiphonic that you know is like on the verge of breaking. Yeah. Um, gives it this sort of intensity that she's looking for. So she chose this technique or this sound that actually embodies what you're supposed to feel when you listen to it. Mm. And so it helps mm-hmm. the performer really create that. And I think, and then it turns into this wild section that's really challenging to play and it's really high and there are these sort of um, articulated passages that climb from the lowest register into the highest register and and into the extended register um, with these glisses and multiphonics and it's just this sort of cacophonous section that's supposed to be this crying out and sort of this like desperation and you feel desperate when you play it because it's so hard. <laughs> so it's like she she figured out how to physically, she knew. <laughs> yeah, how to like physically bring out the characters she wanted. Because sometimes you have to create that as a performer, but it's it's awesome when a composer is capable of building that into the piece, so that it's like always like there's not a chance that you can't. You know, if you're playing the piece and you're really trying to, um, you know. I guess, master the techniques that are in it, it's already going to bring you to a space where you're able to express what she's asking, Yeah, if that makes sense. What does the title mean? Ototoy. Uh, well, it's, I don't know if I'm going to say this word right, Anamata, uh, Anamata poetic. Anamata poetic. <laughs> it's an onomatopoeia, yeah. so it's onomata poetic, which I'm not used to saying that word. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so this is based on Greek mythology, uh, should I read the program note? Sure. Okay, yeah. it's much easier to read the program note. Uh, it's very concise. So ototoi is transliterated Greek, is an onomata poetic cry. <laughs> okay, I'll try that again. Is an onomata poetic cry of wild distress and is the first utterance out of the mouth of Cassandra in Aeschylus Agamemnon. Um, her gift of foresight has brought her unimaginable horror. She is buffeted with the vision of her imminent murder by Clytemnestra, who describes Cassandra as a swallow possessed of her own barbaric song, strange, dark. As the agonized girl pours out mangled descriptions of atrocities, one wonders about the construction of her inner reality. How does she receive these visions, and what is the sound of the voice that brings them? 
Otototoi uses the two players, their instruments, and their voices to dramatize this dialogue between the supernatural whisperings of the future and the muttering dread of the present. Yeah, there's some stuff in there. Jeez. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, even without keeping that story in mind, you can definitely bring yourself to that place the second you start playing that piece. And right. it's, it's a very concise, about six-minute piece. And it used to be longer, and she really tightened it up over mm-hmm. the course of the couple years that we've been working together. Um, and it, it ends up really striking people. Like, people come up to us after, and they're like, wow, Kate Sober's piece. Just like, I don't know, it has this really amazing trajectory to it. Yeah, definitely. So now we're going to hear this piece. This is Kate Soper's Ototoy, performed by Oni Suono.
let's switch gears now to your other duo, which is Patchwork. And how did that one get started? Okay. It's hard to remember dates on this one. Um, but Stephen Klunk is my duo partner, and we met at Bowling Green State University, where uh, Stephen was doing his master's degree. Uh, he also had did his bachelor's degree there in percussion performance. It's true, because he was a freshman when I was a senior there. Yeah. <laughs> small world. Uh, So he was doing his master's degree and I was starting my doctorate and I asked him to play on a recital that I had. I had sort of expanded the reduction of a concerto I was playing um, because it worked a lot better with percussion. And he played on that. And then the following year, he asked me to play on a piece that I had already played for saxophone and drum set by Dennis DeSantis called Plus Eight. And this was when Stephen was, so he has a background in classical percussion, but he was also playing in a metal band in Toledo, which is where he's from. And he was interested in sort of taking his classical music chops and putting that into the drum set more and getting more into new music. So we played that piece together. And then the following year, I think I I discovered that Alex Minchik had this awesome piece called Nucleus for saxophone and drum set. That was a whole new would be a whole new adventure for us because it was a lot more timbre-based and was a longer piece and it was just much more um, along the ter- the lines of contemporary classical music. Mm-hmm. Um, so lots of extended techniques and matching timbres, and it would just be a new challenge for us. Uh, and we played that a couple of times, and then I don't know. I guess I don't know if it was I had the idea or we sort of gradually came up with this idea um, that it would be great to have a saxophone and drum set duo uh, that commissioned more music for this instrumentation because Nucleus was an awesome piece. And we thought there would be more potential to explore, you know, the combination of what the saxophone and drum set can do. Uh, with the electronics or with, you know, different implements on the drum set and just, you know, see what composers would come up with. And so I think we formed in 2012, and actually John Sokol was one of the first composers we commissioned, mm-hmm. um, and it, also John Fielder, Ruby Fulton, Max Graff, and you know we've had multiple you know more composers since then. But we tried to purposefully. Um, well, our name Patchwork comes from this idea that we were going to play new music of a wide variety of styles, mm-hmm. and as you'll hear if you sort of explore our videos on YouTube and our website, 
we have many different styles. So a lot of a lot of people tend to write sort of rock or jazz influence pieces for us, or mm-hmm. even metal influence pieces for us, just because of our instrumentation. Right. They yeah. sort of hear saxophone and drums, and that you know conjures up a certain. Both of those instruments can be loud. They can kind of scream. You know, they can rock the hell out. But I mean. No one, no one ever really thinks about this, but per, I, I feel like percussion, while it can be one of the loudest instruments of all the instruments, it can also be one of the softest. You know, it has that it has that capability where you know it's just on some other instruments, it's just not possible to make a sound so quiet as you can be on in percussion and saxophone as well. Like you know, the the piece I mentioned at the at the very beginning, one of the things I loved about John Sokol's piece was you were playing multiphonics on a Barry saxophone and they were just barely coming out and they were like a they were so close together like the dyads you were talking about in the last piece and so you know just just delicate. And so the two instruments they have I feel like just an incredible range. So it's it is cool that you are doing like so many different types of music and you're getting people to write so many different things for those two instruments. Yeah, and so we had a bunch of sort of rock influenced pieces and other pieces too. Um, but I heard, you know, after we had worked on Nucleus, I was more sort of, uh, you know, looking into the music by other wedding composers, but also had gone to a saxophone conference and heard live Eric Wobble's This Is, This Is, This Is, which is for either one alto saxophonist and piano or two alto saxophonists playing heterophonically with piano, Mm. which that's probably the best version because you get that like extra grit to it. Um, So I've never played that piece, but Steve and I both, we we were playing at that conference and we sat next to each other and we're like, yeah, we have to try to commission him (laughs) because he would be perfect for us. It was like very rhythmic, very driving and such cool tone colors with the piano and the saxophone. And Eric is a pianist, so that's no surprise, but um, we, we had a feeling he would write us a really interesting piece. And so we didn't know him at the time and we emailed him. And it worked out. The timing worked out well. And we organized a consortium to get a piece from him. So the piece we're going to hear is Axamer Folio. And um, this, it has a really interesting kind of structure to it. Or, well, yeah, it is a structure. It's just, you know, kind of... Uh, deconstructed? Deconstructed. Yeah, exactly. Great. <laughs> so what is what is going on with this piece kind of structurally? Well, we met with Eric before he had any material. We met in New York City. Uh, I think we were there to, I don't remember, it was a multi-purpose visit, I think. You know, I wanted to visit my sister, and we were, uh, maybe we were performing a concert there. I don't even remember. But we were in New York, and it worked out that the wedding ensemble had rehearsals, and we met at Columbia University and workshopped with Eric, and he was like, yeah, he had asked us in advance to come up with 10 to 20 sounds that we liked to make on the saxophone and on the drum set. And we came up with this individually, so we didn't collaborate on that part. But we came together, and Eric heard our sounds and asked us to, like, adapt some of them, and he he wanted to find a quote-unquote alphabet of sounds Mm -hmm. to use for his piece. Um, so sounds that could come back and sounds that could be recombined and sounds that some of which would make our each instrument stand out from the other and some that made the instruments blend. 
And so that was sort of the impetus. We had no idea that he was going to come up with a modular piece. So it's like 20, I don't even know how many there are at this point, uh, because he kept adding more as he went. But there are I think he said, yeah, on his his website, he says there are 24. Okay. So that's a combination of duets and solos for each instrument. Yeah, and some of them, they're different lengths, but they vary from a few, you know, a few seconds to five minutes or so. Uh, and, and there are sort of some rules about how to put these together. Um, but the reason he, I think, came up with this idea of a modular work is because there were going to be multiple groups playing the same piece, and he thought it would be interesting to get much more di- you know, different versions of this piece and so that each duo... And also we came, you know, each duo was coming from different backgrounds slightly and he wanted everyone to feel comfortable and bring their strengths to the piece. Mm-hmm. And so in getting to choose what, you know, which portion of the piece you want to play and how long your version is going to be, because it can be seven minutes, around seven minutes up to 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. So he wanted everyone to be able to choose, you know, what's comfortable for them and what, you know, what uh, the the sections that they wanted to play and that brought out their strengths. That's interesting that this was done for a commission, but it really, it still has your individual, you know, your unique voice on it, the patchwork voice, because you were the ones that were kind of giving him the the alphabet for it. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah, but he also, I think, when we brought our sounds, we didn't necessarily end up using those sounds. I think he, you know, would ask us, "What do you like to do?" And then we would play something and be like, "Okay, well, what about?" What if you added this to that? Or mm-hmm. what if you changed this fingering? And what what if you made that sound more airy? And so it was kind of a collaborative pr- process in that right. way, too. So since this is a modular piece, I mean, do you, you know, he he kind of intended it to be for multiple different ensembles so that multiple, you could get multiple interpretations of it, right? So do you have multiple interpretations just within patchwork of this piece? Well, we have a longer version that we did the first season we played this. Um, It's closer to, it's about 20 minutes, 21 minutes, I think. And that version, we took bits and pieces from that version and made a shorter version for the last couple of seasons that we've had. Uh, And that's about 10 to 11 minutes. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that they're different interpretations, but slightly different versions. They definitely feel different, not just because of the length, but because the 10-minute version doesn't include some of the more improvised sections. Mm -hmm. And some of the more chaotic sections that sound less structured. You said there there are rules to kind of how you put this together, but I mean, does that give you flexibility to kind of like, let's say, take the end and put it in the beginning, or you know, well, there of... is no end, right? But there are there are like quote unquote movements or uh, modules, whatever you want to call them, that he said would work better at the uh-huh. end or the beginning, or that's where he envisioned them. But, you know, we asked him to break the rules a few times for us because we wanted to do something specific, and then he'd be like, well, what if you try this instead? So we definitely ran our version by him um, because, you know, he, he knows the piece even more intimately and can o- offer sort of a, an outside ear to that. But it was it was a difficult process because before we could play the material, we already had to decide which material to play. So yeah. we had to study the score really right. extensively because we're not going to learn every module. They're very hard. Yeah. We weren't well, going to learn all of them and then exactly. pick after, oh, I like this one. No. Like, <laughs> I would have taken me two years to – not really. But it would have taken a long time to learn all of the materials. So we kind of had to eyeball it and kind of look at 
each other's parts and see, okay, maybe this could fit with that. And that's part of why we wanted to consult him at the beginning because we were less familiar with the material. And as we went, we had to make changes as we went because we realized like, oh, this doesn't work that well. Uh, And so, yeah, and I think we might have a different version. You know, if we keep playing the piece, maybe in five years we'll learn new movements of it and then Mm -hmm. rearrange it. So that's really the the, the coolest part of the project is that we could play it for like a lifetime and have so many different versions. It's there's alive. En- yeah, yeah. There's enough material there to do so much. So that's really exciting. Um, and that's something I think we plan to explore. The piece kind of has a, a kinship with, you know, maybe a composer like Morton Feldman or Pierre Schaeffer, you know, you think kind of thinking about the sound object and, you know, mo- just using repetition as, as kind of a device. And I have to say that, you know, when I, when I first turned this piece on and I was listening to it, it, I was kind of, it was kind of a head scratcher, but then as I got more into the, the language of the piece and the kind of the sound world of the piece, Oh my God, this is, (laughs) this is pretty cool. I I like it a lot. So now we're going to hear an excerpt of this piece. It is Eric Wubble's Axmer Folio performed by Patchwork.
Okay, switching back to Onyu Suono. <laughs> it's so hard. Anyway, what does that name mean anyway? Each sound or every sound comes from the title of the first piece we commissioned, which is Onyu Suono Come Un Essere Vivente, which means every sound like a living being. Oh, okay. And it's by an American composer. But we took, we were trying to think of a name, and we were like, man, it's so hard to think of a name. And then I was like, let's call ourselves Onyiswono, because it comes from the first, you know, the title of our first piece, except no one in America can say it. Yeah, So a- as I'm evidencing right now. We're, we're holding out. We're totally going to tour Italy extensively <laughs> just to hear the name pronounced properly. Right. So we're going to go to Aaron Rodgers' piece called Clamor. And this was another commissioned piece uh also part of the uh saxo voce and um i'm just i just want to kind of read her program notes for this piece and they're very short very sweet and it's circles of instrumental racket vocal noise and sounds from somewhere in between clamor for two vocalizing saxophonists is an eight minute oversaturation of human plus instruments the eggs were not removed from the stove in a timely fashion I love that last statement. And what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. Your guess is as good as mine. Okay. Uh, I think it points to how nonsensical the piece is. Uh, like something's not quite right. Because mm-hmm. everything that we utter in that piece either doesn't make sense, but it almost makes sense. Or mm-hmm. it's not totally comprehensible because there's too much noise over it so you can't right. understand it clearly so it's almost a little bit absurdist yes in a way yeah and it kind of it the piece musically kind of draws on a lot of different musical traditions or, or musical styles so it's kind of in that in that postmodern kind of realm and then you guys are speaking a lot mm-hmm. in this piece. <laughs> there is a part, I think, where you are just 
Yammering is not the right word, but you are flowing seamlessly through a huge amount of text. I've got to tell you, that was pretty damn impressive. So what, I mean, what, what is this piece to you guys? Uh, well, it's a time for the audience to let loose, but we, if we're in a concert hall, we usually have to announce to the audience that they're allowed to react to the piece Mm -hmm. as they want. So they're, you know, if they feel like it's funny, they should laugh because it's really awkward when they don't because it is funny. Yeah. Everyone wants to laugh at some point (laughs) and they just like try to hold it in and it's very awkward when that happens. So it's, we always play it at the end of our program and it's also, it's just so fun and quirky. It kind of has to go at the end. It's just like really relaxing to play. Uh, well, I don't know if relaxing is the right word. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's it's really fun it's for fun. us to be goofy on stage. And I think that that was one of the challenges at first because it's not, uh, you know, that common for classical musicians to, unless you're a vocalist and you're acting a role, I mean, you you know, it's it's not common to get to be that silly on stage. Uh if you have a history as, you know, if you're classically trained. So that was a new challenge for us, uh, but a really fun challenge that we enjoy. So the piece to us is, there. Are, so the text that's in the piece uh, is basically saxophone fingerings mm. and breakfast <laughs> foods and politics. So those are the three <laughs> topics that are literally mashed together. I mean, they're... The last, if you, the last blurb that I utter really quickly is full of breakfast foods that are sort of conglomerated with politics. And then Sounds there are like something that's out of Monty Python or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to describe, but yeah, it's all sort of a mashup of, of breakfast foods that are matched up with with uh, Mm -hmm. politics or political terms. Right. So uh, otherwise, yeah, there are saxophone fingerings toward the beginning of the piece. And sometimes it's very literal. Like at the end, we yell double trill and then we play a double trill on (laughs) cue together. (laughs) So, and it's really fun to play this for saxophonists. So when we go to universities and play this for saxophone audiences, we kind of point out sometimes before we play it, you know, you might recognize some of the language as Mm -hmm. saxophone fingerings and rehearsal um, and it's supposed to be like a, you know, a performer who's frustrated in rehearsal and they kind of start yelling and they're frustrated. Right. And so it's, it's fun to act that out because, you know, it happens. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely like it, it plays well to a saxophone audience. They're, they're inside jokes, right? Yeah. And even if you, d- I mean, if you don't know what C1 and C2 or TC, those are fingerings and we say one, two, and it's also like we count off sometimes one, two, three, four. Like we do that in the piece, but there are also these numbers combined with the fingerings. So mm-hmm. it could just sound like we're sort of speaking in code. Right. Yeah. Um, but for saxophonists, it's extra special because it actually means something. Yeah. 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 It remi- In a way, it kind of reminds me of uh, Mark Applebaum's piece, uh, Precomposition, because that that's, you know, a meta piece about the act of composing an, elec- an electronic music composition with all of the all the jokes for the you know the people in the know yeah. which is hilarious i always try to give you know present it to students and invariably you know one person who's who's taken my electro class will laugh and i feel really bad because i think it's such a funny piece it's really really funny but what about like a really big theremin that's one of my favorite lines from it 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of the reason we we commissioned Erin specifically is, first of all, she's a saxophonist, yeah. so she knows how to write for the instrument very well. And then she is also in uh, a couple of groups that are more theatrical. Um, mm-hmm. Her newer group, Pope Bama, uh, that's saxophone and percussion um, with Dennis Sullivan, they both compose for the group. Uh, but they also, you know, their pieces are very theatrical and they have props and they act it out and it's sort of like a seamless set in some cases when I've seen them um, play live. And uh, between that and Thing NY, which is her sort of improv group that, um, you know, I haven't gotten to see them live, but we we thought she would be a great person to, to do this and she would be, you know, sort of be more adventurous with us and sort of mm-hmm. challenge us in that sense of of uh, making us maybe do something that we're not as comfortable with. And yeah. so, you know, now I've become a lot more comfortable doing pretty much anything on stage <laughs> and acting and and being goofy and being okay with it and, and having fun. And that's a really cool thing. And that was part of the impetus for Saxo Voce also is to challenge ourselves in a new way, um, in a new, like, performative way. Mm-hmm. Like, what's something we haven't done yet that would, you know, challenge us and... and um, bring us to a new place as a duo, but also as individual performers. I believe that I overlapped briefly with Erin when she was at Bowling Green. How did, how did you get connected with her? Is it also from that Bowling Green connection or did you know her from, from other, other places or other connections? Well, there was a professor at Bowling Green that told me that I reminded them of her for whatever reason. <laughs> and I don't know if, yeah, I, if it's worth mentioning, but I heard her name and I didn't know her. So it made me look up her music because mm. I was like, well, who's this person I'm reminding yeah. this professor of? And so I looked up Erin and I was like, oh, her stuff's really cool. And then I, I introduced myself at a saxophone conference, I think. I don't remember exactly where we met, but I heard her quartet play uh, one of her pieces at the Saxophone Congress in St. Andrews, Scotland a few years ago. And I think it was in 2012. And, you know, that's... 2012 I, keeps coming back. Yeah, I know. A it lot happened. Quite a year. year. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I kept seeing her. And then she, uh, yeah, she wrote us this piece. And actually now she's writing a piece for Patchwork. Oh, awesome. Yeah. When it, do, you, do you know when that's coming out? Yeah, and this summer. We organized a consortium for that too. So awesome. uh, who knows what that piece is going to be like. <laughs> we, did, we didn't ask for it to have any vocalizing or any theatrics, but knowing Aaron, I'm, I'm not going to. Don't, don't rule it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so let's take a listen to this. This is Clamor by Aaron Rodgers. Segregate. Segregate. Isolate. 
All right, so we're going to get to the last piece and back to patchwork. And this piece is by Charlie Wilmoth, and it's called Fractured Laundry. And so who is Charlie Wilmoth, and how did you get connected to him? We actually met Charlie at a house concert, uh, which was a group muse concert when they were in their beta version in Cleveland. I don't know if it stuck, though, but... So this uh, concert was hosted by a pianist we know in the area, and the concert was uh, Beethoven coming from New York. Um, And one of the members of Beethoven is Carl Larson, also a Bowling Green alum. So we went to hear them play, and they were playing uh, Charlie's piece. Uh, Charlie is a Columbus-based composer, uh, and he was there. And we heard the piece, and we thought, you know, he would be a great composer to write for Patchwork because Beethoven is... Piano, drums, or drum set, and uh, actually, no. Piano, percussion, and bass. But this piece happened to be on drum set. Mm -hmm. And it was just this, like, really driving rhythmic but, like, sort of quirky piece that had a lot of really uh, complex rhythms in it. And so it kind of, like, almost grooved but didn't quite groove. And we thought it would be a fun challenge for Steven, especially, like, seeing the drummer play this part. I was like, I can totally envision Steven loving playing this. Yeah, getting really into it. Yeah, and I thought it would be, you know, a great, uh, that he would be perfect to write for saxophone too. And he was there and we just started talking to him and we were like instantly agreed like we should commission him. (laughs) So we were like, hey, would you be interested in working with us, you Mm -hmm. know? And he was like, sure, without even knowing anything about us. He Mm -hmm. kind of was like, yeah. (laughs) And so... uh, Most composers, I think, would say that, like... Hey, I'm interested in your music. Can it, can we commission you? Mm, nah. <laughs> I don't think that has ever been uttered in the history of composers. But. Well, I think, you know, we he knew, knew us through Carl, who was yeah. there, and through, uh, I, I know, he, we told him a little bit about what we do, and uh, we just kept the conversation going. I'm not sure he agreed on the spot or anything, but um, <laughs> I think he, you know, he heard some of our recordings and then agreed to do it, and then... Uh, yeah, we, I, I don't know how many months later, maybe a year later, we we had a piece from him. So there wasn't a ton of workshopping involved with that. But he teaches at Otterbein University, which is just a little bit outside of Columbus. Mm-hmm. Um, fractured Laundry. What is what is that? Well, he didn't have a title for a long time. Uh-huh. Uh, and I don't know. Eventually, I was like, well, we're playing this soon. We need a title. <laughs> It's got to go to print. <laughs> yeah. And so he was like fractured laundry. And it was like kind of a perfect title because yeah. it didn't really make sense. But the word fractured really conjures something. And then 
laundry is a dirty laundry is it clean laundry who knows who knows it's fractured laundry this piece it, i mean it's it's really interesting because this piece is essentially about nine and a half minutes of really high energy you know re, you're you're on almost the whole time except for a, a little slight dip at the end but i mean of all these of these pieces you've commissioned through patchwork i mean what would be one that's like the exact opposite of this because this this is kind of really high energy, very loud, you know, you're you're you have both instruments at max for a lot of the time. So do you do you guys have another piece which is kind of you know, like I said, almost the exact opposite, you know, really really quiet, really I mean, I guess part of parts of the wobbles are very yeah. quiet and less driving. Uh John, well we don't we haven't played this in a long time because we haven't played pieces with electronics in a very long time, but John Fielder wrote us a piece, uh, also a Bowling Green alum. Uh, Who was just on the podcast last week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Called uh, Bellowing Thunder Crimson Sky. I mean, there is like a thunderous section, but Mm -hmm. a lot of it is very peaceful. Uh, And right now we're commissioning Osnat Netzer, who's a Boston-based composer, and a lot of sections of her piece are relatively calm and very Mm -hmm. intricate and... um, just exploring different timbres. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of our music is deriving, but this piece in particular is basically there's just not much contrast in it in terms of dynamics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he very much says, you know, saxophone has to be amplified for this. I mean, that's really the only way it will work. Right. Um, but it is because it's so high energy, and it sort of like needs to go at the end of a program. Yeah. It's really challenging to play at the end of a program <laughs> because it's physically very demanding for right. both of us. Yeah. Steven's arms are kind of spent. Your lips are kind of spent. Yeah. And then we have to just go all the way and like completely destroy everything to make it through this piece. (laughs) So let's uh, let's give this a listen at the end of our at the end of our podcast. This is Fractured Laundry by Charlie Wilmoth.
So we're at the end where I ask the question of all the people I have on the podcast. How did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Well, I'm not sure there was one particular moment where I said, this is what I want to do. But when I was a junior, I think it was the summer before my senior year or maybe the summer before my junior year, um, my teacher at the music camp I went to, New England Music Camp, um, her name's Gail Levinsky. She teaches at Susquehanna University. She recommended that I study music in college, and that was a completely foreign idea to me. I, mm-hmm. you know, I don't come from a family of musicians. I really didn't think that that was an option for me, not because I necessarily wasn't good enough, but I really didn't know what it took to do it, and mm-hmm. I didn't know that I was qualified at all. And I didn't realize that, I don't know, I just didn't conceptualize doing that at all. But it sort of planted a seed in my brain, like, hey, maybe this is something I w- would want to do. And then uh, junior and senior year of high school, I was in the Massachusetts Youth Wind Ensemble, which was part of the preparatory program at New England Conservatory. And I went every Friday afternoon, like every Friday afternoon or evening, I went into Boston and had rehearsal with these incredible musicians from New England who would drive in from an hour or two away for these rehearsals. And it was an audition group, and it was almost like an all-state ensemble that met every week. It Uh was incredibly satisfying musically, and I was just surrounded by people who ended up going to the top conservatories in the country. 
And I felt very like grateful to be there and and had these amazing like euphoric experiences on stage Mm -hmm. playing with these people every week. And also our director was just the most inspiring, you know, music educator. And he taught in Western Mass. Um, So I don't know. I think that helped. Going to music camp helped. And going to college, I went to Northwestern for my undergrad and did music education and performance. And I really loved the combination of doing both of those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was really special um, the music ed program there was really special, and it was a very small program, so I felt like it was a very intimate environment to sort of explore and gather ideas and um, and experiment, and also be in the field. I think I, you know, I spent a lot of time actually teaching, which was great. Um, so I knew that I wanted to be a music educator. It took me a while to decide that I was going to go to graduate school for saxophone, mm-hmm. and it took me a while to get into contemporary music. So I think that was all sort of, you know, I didn't really decide this is what I'm going to do forever, but it kind of worked out and I just kept going and I kept going. And I thought about being a band director for a while. Uh, I went to France to study, went, came back to the U.S. and worked in San Francisco for a year. So I took some time off and thought about it, but I instantly wanted to go to grad school and like see what would happen. You know, how much could I hone my craft? You know, mm-hmm. how can I keep, and I started commissioning music that year too. And it was really fun to collaborate with composers. And I just wanted to do more. I was like addicted to this, that Mm -hmm. process and just like getting better and seeing what would happen. And I decided to just kind of take the risk because it's a little bit risky to try, you know, to do this these days. And and I just wanted to go for it. Um, But it was sort of that feeling of performing. It's like exhilarating to spend so many hours preparing and then getting on stage. But I think particularly chamber music and large ensemble playing was where I felt like the energy of playing with other people can be so powerful. Yeah. And then also getting into contemporary music, collaborating with other people and like bringing these projects to life and then letting them evolve. And, you know, because I really like playing pieces multiple times and getting to know them. Um, So I like doing that with new music because then composers can revise and, Mm -hmm. you know. And several of the composers we listened to tonight benefited from yeah. that. Yeah, that's great. So I just, I guess I love, I love the process. So, you know, I feel like every once in a while you always have to like reaffirm your decision to be doing this mm-hmm. um, in a way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think every, you know, every music, well, not every musician, but I, you know, a lot of people I know have that sort of, you know, have to reaffirm their desire to do this, but it's really hard to get away from it. So yeah, that's my story. Yeah. So before we go, can you tell everyone where people can find recordings of yours and connect with you? Sure. So my website is noahevan.com. And uh, my duos also have websites, uh, patchworkduo.com and onisuono.com, which is O-G-N-I-S-U-O-N-O.com. Uh, and both of the duos have Facebook pages as well where you can follow us. Um, and Patchwork does not yet have an album, but we have a pretty good YouTube presence. So you can find some of our, our live recordings and the studio recording of Fractured Laundry there. And hopefully we'll be recording, uh, relatively soon. And Onisono, uh, has an album called Invisible Seams with, uh, six of our first commissions and we'll have another album out in September, hopefully. Um, and you know, I have some solo stuff on SoundCloud and YouTube as well and other chamber music, like a 
really uh, interesting piccolo, flute, tuba, baritone, saxophone trio. <laughs> so there's some quirky stuff out there. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for doing this, Noah. Thank you. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.